But the number one thing I took away was hire incredible talent and train them and make sure you have a system for how they work that that works, that you can repeat it multiple times over. And I used to, at Ampush in the early days, I would say, we got to build our McDonald's franchise. And as soon as we were able to do that, that's how, you know, we scaled Ampush from 3 million in revenue to 24 million in revenue in less than three years. Dude, that's a massive agency, man. That's amazing. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today on the podcast, I have one of my favorite Twitter follows or ex-follows, Jesse Puji. The dude is super impressive. He is the CEO of Gateway Ventures. It's his own kind of fund startup studio that he's done. But his background is very impressive. He started on Wall Street, worked at Goldman Sachs, but he launched a Facebook ad agency in the early days. Got it to over 25 million in sales, sold part of it. And from that, he started bootstrapping and making his own companies. He has Growth Assistant, which is essentially a productized service HR placement company for growth marketers um, that's hit eight figures. He has his own D2C startup called Unbloat. That's a subscription product for people around gut health. That's doing over $3 million. He just launched a SaaS called Kahani for Shopify users that essentially takes the stories feature you use um, on Instagram and puts that on your website to make a really unique landing page experience. So how the heck has he pulled all of this off? That's what I was trying to get the, the cheat code on. We talk about, you know, what makes a good bootstrap company, how to find your zone of genius, to know what you should focus on versus what you should hire for, and the the startups he's launched that have failed, the mistakes he's made when trying to launch multiple companies or trying to find the right bootstrap company. And he's super open and honest about the playbook, what has worked, what has not worked. I try and get um, all the lessons out of him. But it's it's a really fun episode to see how someone's grown a lot of businesses in kind of a non-traditional way without outside funding. And he even talks about how much money he's putting into each project to test. Um, And then he talks about what he's launching next, this idea of bootstrap giants um, and the content kind of media company that's coming out. But really hope you enjoyed this episode with Jesse. Excited to get into it. So Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's It's a pleasure, Jim. So what we're just going to cut to, I read a thing whenever you interview somebody, start with the question you want answered first. So we're just yeah. going to go with that. You're coming out with content around this concept of bootstrap giants. And like, you know how people yeah. have trigger words, like good or bad, like bootstrap business owner is always a trigger word for me in a good way where I'm like, I'm sold. Like that name alone, I'm super jealous. I love kind of yeah. oxymorons, opposing things. So well done there. But let's just like, Come off the top rope, like, what does a bootstrap business even mean? Because some people are like, oh, does that mean self-funded or it's like grows organically? Like, how do you define a bootstrap business versus like, what are even the other options for starting a business? Yeah, yeah. Well, let's jump into bootstrap giants, you know, as a thing. I think where it came from for me is... The, the typical narrative, like I see it, the, the most common narrative out there is there's two options if you want to start a business. The first is, I think the most well-worn, at least for people kind of 
from my background, which is, hey, go start a venture funded business. And, you know, you, you can raise, you can raise money, you can raise seed money, pre-seed money, you know, the pre-seed is 500K out of 5 million. And then you get to the 15 and it's this like worn path and there's people who will do your decks for you. And it's, it's this like, it's almost like you take the kids who went to college, you know, I went to an Ivy League college and then you went into consulting and then investment banking, you know, and then probably like, and it's almost like the same steps in, 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 in VC. And, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be super negative on it. I think there's just, it's a very well-worn path. And by the way, I, we can talk about this. I think it's, I think it's right for lots of types of businesses and lots of types of bets that people are making. So I think it can be the right option for a lot, but, it, but it's, that's one narrative that's very well-worn. The other narrative is like the four hour work week narrative, which is, Hey, I'm going to like a lifestyle business. I'm going to make some money and I'm going to do what I want. And there's also a lot, there's books written, literally there's a book written, right? Called four hour work week. And then I think there's this other category that frankly, I think most businesses in history have been, and I think a lot of businesses are, which is, hey, I'm I'm building a business off my own profits. I want to be in charge. I don't necessarily want to sign up for a board. I want to I want to be the person running the company, making the decisions, driving it. I want to be able to control my destiny and and you know be the owner. But I'm as ambitious as anyone else. I, I want it to be a huge business. I want it to be make lots of money. I want it be to be really amazing. And change in industry and all those things. And I think that is what I sort of defined as a bootstrap giant. And I think the thing I observed was there are not as many materials, conversations, content out there for the founder who's who's on that path. And, and so that's sort of what the, you know, the unserved market, if you will, in the case of bootstrap giants that I'm trying to build around, which is, hey, I think there's this, and, and look, there's a lot of the principles. Some of my favorite content on the internet is Paul Graham's letters. So there's a lot in the Venn diagram of how to start a company and grow it. There's a lot of stuff that's the same no matter what, whether regardless of how you're financed, right? But I think there's a lot of nuances to bootstrapping a business. So that's kind of the concept of bootstrap giants. You know, what is bootstrapping? Look, I, you know, I don't know. I'm sure there's a million definitions. There's You could go with a very extreme binary definition, which is, look, I never raised a dime of outside money from a single person. I think that's probably the most obvious extreme answer. I, I just never raised any money from anyone. I started myself. And I just kept going. There's this really funny book I read the other day about the famous banana man. Have you heard the story? Oh yeah, absolutely. What's that? did you listen to the founder podcast? I feel like that's when I was heard about it, but not no. Someone just told me to read it, and and you know the guy starts the business. I won't go to the whole story. It's a great book. I can't remember what it's called, but it's something about the famous banana guys who like you know. But this guy, he he goes to the docks of Louisiana and he basically in the banana business, you know, if, if you get a shipment of bananas and any of them are ripe, they have to throw them off of the shipment because the, every banana has the same genetic makeup. They're all clones of each other. So if one gets ripe, the rest of them get ripe really fast. Well, if a bunch of bananas get ripe while in shipping, they all go bad. They all go bad essentially by the time they're on the retail. So they would land in the docks in Louisiana and anything that was yellow, they'd go around and throw it off. They'd throw it away. They'd throw the yellow banana away. So this guy goes, I well, this free. Those bananas are free. I'm going to go get those bananas. So he just starts taking those bananas and he just goes within a 30 mile radius of the dock and sells them at a huge discount. And this guy just ends up, you know, becoming. And then from that, the book basically chronicles how he starts at that to literally taking over the banana industry. Like, like 20 years later, he buys out the company that was doing, you know, who he originally got. So that's like a fun way to think of boots. True bootstrapping is like, man, you had nothing and you just hustled your dollar from from dollar one. I think like I personally would probably include anything in the like low single digit millions raised, whether from friends and family or even sometimes from angels, 
you know, maybe the way to the anti-definition is like, I think the second you take institutional capital from a venture firm, you can't really be bootstrapped anymore. And, and the reason for that is, you know, most often than not, you have to get on the venture treadmill, which means as soon as you raise your seed, you got to raise your A and then you have to hit certain metrics. And if you're not on those tracks, you're not on track to be a unicorn, which, you know, so on and so forth means that there's obviously exceptions to these rules, but that's kind of how I think about what bootstrapping is. Yeah. To keep your members only bootstrap jacket, no institutional funding is like the line in the sand. I I, I like that. I like the example of the banana man because and it kind of parallels what Nathan Barry has this article of ConvertKid CEO, this idea of like ladders of wealth creation and laddering up, like right. using your profits to grow your business yeah. or to fund the next one, kind of stair-stepping. And I, I think you've done that really well from like an sure. agency model to a SaaS model to an e-commerce model. And as we get into those two, I'm going to talk about that because I'm impressed you could bootstrap those because a lot of those, we have to buy inventory or you have to invest in building a tech product. Those can be very capital intensive where in some cases being bootstrapped could be a disadvantage as opposed to an advantage. And maybe I'm, I'm wrong in that, but I'd love to hear like this kind of recipe where someone's listening to this, like, all right, sold, bootstrap, own 100%, let's go. Where Where do you even start? What are your unfair advantage you should be playing in? Because I think a lot of people want to bootstrap, yeah. but then they hit a wall where it doesn't work. So I think I have to do five questions at you. So feel free yeah, to pick yeah. well, your you, own you, adventure. You mentioned before the the we started recording, like I just put this email course out. It's the first one I've ever done. And I'm curious what it's going to do. I have no idea, right? But it's a question that I get asked a lot. What kind of what you asked, which is like, well, if I want to bootstrap, where do I start? And, you know, I, I sort of put together my my answer to this question. And I think, the first question that I always throw at everyone is like, what do you actually want? And, you know, I, I made this mistake. I think a lot of entrepreneurs make this mistake. Like the, the question you always ask yourself when you're starting a business is, or the thing you're trying to avoid is how do I not fail? I can't fail. I can't fail. I can't fail. Like that's, that's your, it's just like this super scary, you know, nobody wants to go back and tail between their legs and go get the job. Like it, the, the concept, I remember the fear like, oh my God, what if I have to go to business school because I like my venture failed? I'm going to have to admit that that <laughs> failed. Like, it's a very vulnerable position. I think that's the thing we don't talk about enough in entrepreneurship is how personally vulnerable it is and how courageous it really is. And so like the first, when I meet a new entrepreneur, the first thing I say to them is, I acknowledge how courageous you are. What you're doing takes a lot of courage. And I, I think it's worth even pausing there for a moment. It's like, man, why don't we say that to each other as often as, as like, I think we'd like to hear it. I'd still like to hear it from my friends and my wife and my kids. Like, man, you're doing something courageous, you know? Um, But, but anyway, so, so you end up spending a lot of time on, I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail. But the question a lot of people don't ask themselves is, well, what if I succeed? What do I actually want? And, and I kind of paint the picture as like, again, across these three different sort of genres is, well, if, if you're successful in a venture model, you probably own, 10, you know, seven to 20% of your company or seven to 15% of your company, you've raised multiple rounds, you have a board, you likely don't control your company. Your company's probably worth a billion dollars if you're successful or some huge number like that. But, you know, you're managing a board every day, you're dealing with these huge growth targets, you know, you you can't necessarily make decisions independently if you want to make them. And, you know, you're one bad step away from from some gray-haired person coming in to run the company. And I'm being a little, you know, provocative on purpose, but, but, then, but you probably did something that changed an industry, changed the world, it's big. That's a cool path to be on. And by the way, I think VCs teach young entrepreneurs how to build businesses almost better than anyone. Like they really know how to do it. Again, the other path is you're a four-hour work week. Like 
You know, you're, is that what you want? Do you just want to like chill and run in a bunch of Airbnb rentals and like go vacation a lot? Great. That's another path. Or do you want to like build something that you're excited to walk in every day? You're the boss, you're in charge, you make the final calls, you grow your team at the pace you want to, you make these decisions. Like, and, and like most founders, when I'm talking to them and they haven't started anything, they just think of the question as too indulgent. They're just like, what do you mean? I can't think of that. And I go, well, just think a little bit about it because because even if you're, you know, if, if you don't want to be, if you'd rather, if you're just trying to build a successful business that's say worth $20 million or $50 million, but you get to call the shots, you, you know, you're driving it, it's your choice, it's your decision. You don't have to ask anyone to do anything. Like you probably shouldn't raise an institutional round of capital. Like that's probably not the right thing to do, right? So that's my first, if you want to bootstrap, first get clear with yourself as to what you actually want and just indulge yourself for that little period of, let's assume you'll be successful in three years. What do you actually want? Can we go down that path for a second? I'll use like my own situation because I think it's easy to like start a company, grow up and to the right. I'm a success in the eyes of others. But when you break it down, it's like, what's the reality of your day to day? Because that's where the real joy comes from. Because as I like with our own like growth marketing agency, you know how it is. You have to wear different hats. And I see hats that I like putting on, hats I don't like putting on, hats I'm good at, hats I am not good at. And like right now, I'm very much head of sales. That's the one thing I haven't fired myself from, which I have such a love heat with it. Like sometimes I'm like, I'm talking to founders. This is awesome. It's energizing. Other times I'm like, if I have to go through our deck one more time, like my eyes are going to bleed. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I just can't. And it's You're like a Broadway actor, you know, oh every, every night you get on and sing Alexander Hamilton and like, you got to <laughs> sing the exact same amount of drama and like, enthusiasm. Um, I think I get dumber as I go through it. And I see like a buddy who's an entrepreneur that's like fired himself from sales and he's like tinkering and building and creating. And I just yeah, look over yeah. the fence with MZ like, Oh, because I've kind of figured out like what I want is these things that bring me energy. And I love working in growth yeah. and like new idea and that zero to sure. one. So I don't know if like if to answer that question, is there like an exercise people can do? Do I have to go yeah, like, yeah. on a, a, a retreat and drink some kom- kombucha? Like, well, what are we doing here? <laughs> I'm sure there are retreats for it. I think, well, it's funny that, it's funny you say that because I, I, I share that same experience. I like it more, I think, than you did. Like, I like selling. I like telling stories. I like kind of people like sitting back and listening to me and, and enjoying it. So I maybe don't have the love-hate. I had just the love-love. But, but the joke at Ampush, <laughs> was we would do this, we'd have like roasts every year and we'd have interns, you know, people, you know, it was an open floor plan. So the whole company at one point could literally say, say word for word, my pitch. <laughs> like, hey, I'm Jesse. I grew up and I was an entrepreneur. I went, I worked on Wall Street and then I did, you know, someone told me to look at digital marketing. So there's this hilarious joke internally that Ampush that everyone could tell, could tell the story because I, I literally told it so often. Because the other thing you didn't mention is, even, you know, as founder, you're doing sales, you're also doing recruiting and and it's kind of the mm. same thing. You're selling something, you know, every minute. But anyway, so, you know, th- there's one of my favorite books is called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. Mm. I'm not involved with the company, but I, I very much am an evangelist for it. And, you know, I think they borrowed this from another book called The Big Leap, which I'm a big fan of. But there's this thing called Zone of Genius, and, you know, the, the the setup for it is you have your zone of incompetence, right? So for me, that's like, I don't know, cooking or laundry. Like I just, I'm not very good at it. I could probably do it, but I'm not very good at it. There's zone of competence. Like I think I'm a decent driver. I'm, I'm okay at walking and running. Like I'm competent <laughs> at those things, right? Yeah. And then zone of excellence. Like I'm pretty good with spreadsheets. 
you know, I, I, I'm pretty good with PowerPoint. Like I'm, I'm excellent at those things. I could, I could whip them out, you know, and then there's zone of genius. And, and what differentiates genius from excellence is not only is it something that you're really, really good at, but it's something that gives you energy It energizes you to do it. Mm. And most of us get stuck in our zone of excellence. So you may be stuck in, in a thing that you're really good at. You're good, really good at sales, but it doesn't actually bring you energy. And that's kind of the, you know, one of the things that really a lot of founders who burn out and I spent a ton of time, a big part of my mission is making entrepreneurship sustainable and really being able to coach the CEOs that I'm co-founders with to enjoy this journey, to actually make it a fun journey, not kind of the journey that most people describe. And look, I think your first company when you're young, it's really hard to do any of this stuff. But I think as you age and as you get older, a lot of people kind of figure some of this stuff out with or without the frameworks. They figure out kind of what works for them. And I think so zone of genius is this thing of like, no, it's the things that you could just do endlessly. They genuinely don't feel like work. And like, you know, the best example I always give of this, like Warren Buffett, like the guy loves investing. It's just so obvious. He likes looking at the companies. He's like reading about them. He likes thinking about it. He likes talking about it. Like it clearly energizes him. Like if, you know, when, when Joe Paterno got fired from, from Penn State, you know, the guy, poor guy died within a year. Well, he had no purpose. He has genius was gone, right? It like makes sense. And I bet you if for some reason Buffett couldn't invest within a year, he would be dead. Because that's how much this thing, he, he it energizes him to that degree that he's still alive because of it, I would argue, right? So, so Zone of Genius, there's exercises you can do on their website. There's one called like the energy audit where you kind of see what gives you energy, mm. what takes away your energy. There's a lot of times, here's another weird thing about genius. Uh, it's like a, a fish telling a fish they're a good swimmer. How the hell do they know? Like, it's Right, like, yeah. It's like, what is water, Right. Exactly. And, and so like for me, you know, part of the reason I started building a public persona, people said, Jesse, you're a good talker. You're a good synthesizer. And I'm like, oh, am I better than that than most people? Like I didn't, I didn't appreciate that about myself. Mm -hmm. And so there's another exercise they have where you ask some of the people closest to you who've worked for a long time, like, what are the things I do that seem effortless to you that are like, but, but I, you know, but for you, they'd be really hard because so you're trying to actually identify what your zones of genius are and what kind of naturally oozes from your being. Right. And so I, you know, I think it's cool that we we got here because one of the reasons I started Gateway X, like I was running Ampush for 10 years, is that I started, I dialed in my zone of genius quite a bit. And I realized like the things I do for fun is like I spot opportunities in the world and I, I like want to, you know, put together the right team or the right approach. Like I love, the, I, I get tons of energy from the, not sure if this is possible. Let's go try some things to figure out whether it can be a thing. Right. So that's one. The other one that I just do very naturally is I'm very naturally like, a coach and teacher of people like anyone who ever worked with me knows like it, you know, you'll get, you'll get some feedback, you'll get my perspective, but you'll get a lot of like, Hey, here's a way we could be better next time. And here's a thing to think about. And here's a book to read. And I'm constantly teaching and coaching those around me. Just, I don't even know I'm doing it. It's, it's just something very, very natural. My mom's a teacher. It's very natural to me. And then, you know, I love building relationships with people. Like I love, you know, in, in your seat and my old seat at Ampush, gosh, I got to know so many people and it was so rewarding. And, and I just, it felt effortless to me to get to know someone and it energized me in a very meaningful way. And so I, I started with those three things when I thought about Gateway X and I said, what's a job that's going to let me do those three things all the time? And, you know, venture cap, being a venture capitalist would have had some of those boxes checked, but not all of them. And starting a single company, you know, it wouldn't, it, I felt like I would have ended up back in the same place. And so as I started building what, what Gateway X would be, the venture studio kind of meets holding company, 
I, it was based on my desire to spend 75, 80%. That's the framework that said, try to spend 75, 80% of your time in your zone of genius. You're not ever going to spend all of your time in it, obviously. Right. But if you could spend 75, 80%, you'll, you'll be sustained. You'll be able to constantly sort of have more energy to work. So I'm obviously like pretty devout around, around the concept of that. And, and, you know, as the companies get beyond a certain stage inside of our, you know, inside of Gateway X, I, especially after they find product market fit and they're scaling, I really encourage the CEOs to start to find their zones of genius and hire around the things that that are not, you know, that are in their zones of excellence and competence. Because otherwise what happens is, you know, we had growth assistant, you know, is it say three or 4 million. Now it's over 10 million. And Adrian, you know, she's burning out. Like she, it, she, she has certain days where she's like, gosh, I don't want to be here today. And you know, as a founder, you know, that feeling, I know that feeling, it's not a great feeling. And so to actually make these things sustainable, it's really important that she or anyone in that seat finds their zone of genius and then really has the discipline to stay inside of it and to not veer too far from it. And it's super hard as a founder because you're, the narrative is you got to take care of everything. You're the person, you know, the buck stops with you. And, and so it's a real hard transition to go through. It's been a hard transition even for me in this framework because I'm not running any of the businesses. And like, that's kind of a scary place to be sometimes. Yeah, I have I have a lot of questions on that. One just note, I'm not sure it's the book. I haven't read it. The one you mentioned around uh, the 50 commits to conscious leadership. I did the working genius frame. I'm in this like entrepreneurship review and we did that. And that really helped me. But I think you're really smart. You mentioned 75%. If someone's listening, it's like, understand what your genius is and how do you structure your work, your day to where you're doing over 50% of your time and that ideally 75%. That's amazing. So that's the question, like, how the heck have you pulled this off to have multiple companies with people running it to focus on that zone of genius? Because you're doing something really hard, which is you're going from zero to one with a lot of these ideas, as opposed to buying something that's already working right. and cash flowing, where when you're going from zero to one, you have to be so tenacious. There's so much like roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty type of work. How do you not get sucked into the this, the spiral of the, the day-to-day with those? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, look, I, I I wish I could say that I don't, I haven't. I think <laughs> the first year or two I, I was, I mean, and I think what I, what I also realized was it wasn't successful. Like it wasn't, we, we've learned a ton through this journey, right? And I think the number one thing we've learned through the journey is the company doesn't start until there's the CEO and co-founder in place. Mm-hmm. And we only learned that the hard way. There was two companies we started without a CEO for either of them. And I kind of, half CDO'd, half sort of, you know, didn't do anything. And both of them ended up kind of going through their own really, really challenging, well, both of them effectively have shut down and pivoted into new ideas since then with someone who actually acted as the, you know, as a real CEO for the company. And so, you know, I, I think there's like so many layers to this. I think the hardest thing on a spiritual level, honestly, and, and I think it's worth starting there because most of the time, I believe when you're not doing something you you say you want to do, it's because it's because you're actually afraid you're, there's some part of you that's not willing to do it. And that's why, mm-hmm. right? Because we say all these things all the time and there's some part of us that's afraid that isn't. And I think it's really, really scary to commit to your zone of genius because it means inherently not doing all these other things. And so on yeah. a spiritual level, it's, you know, you know, my coach has helped me kicking and screaming. be like, dude, <laughs> trust, trust your zone of genius. Like trust that if you spend your time in it, you're so much more energized, you're so much more powerful that it's going to end up actually creating the thing you're saying you want and it's going to do that. And I think in the beginning, I, I didn't do it. 
Like I, I've gone through this journey, I guess two years in, almost two and a half years in. And, you know, in the beginning, I didn't do it. I was all over the place. I was, I was jumping in one minute. The next one I was jumping out. Didn't have CEOs running the companies. I was like, oh, well, we'll figure this out. I even, I just signed up to run one of the companies as the CEO for a while. I realized that's not what I want. So I went through a lot of trials and tribulations now to get to a point where I'm like, I am not going to run any of the one companies. The CEO ultimately has to make a lot of the final decisions. I'm going to be there, you know, to help get the idea off the ground like a co-founder would. I'm going to be there kind of as like the, you know, board member owner strategy, helping drive certain things. I'm going to give a bunch of resources to these companies, but like they may not work out and and that may be okay. And I have to like make my peace with that. But I'd say it, a lot of it started at this kind of really willing to commit. And I think, I think what I also, I mean, I kind of inched my way there. Like as I saw my commitment to it, like I saw things be successful and I was like, Ooh, that's interesting. Like I could almost break the areas. I get, I started a few companies and the ones where I had like honored my zone of genius, they were doing better than the ones where I hadn't mm-hmm. honored it actually. Yeah. So but how, how do you pull that off? Because like, got it. Let me hire the CEO to run it beforehand. But I have a couple of questions. It's like, do you need to validate the concepts and then the idea first? Or you already feel that it's validated? Or two, like having the the capital to fund an A plus CEO when maybe the company isn't generating revenue to fund it? Because as we're going this bootstrap path, I guess with Gateway, you then have the funds from cash, other cash flowing businesses or reserves to yeah, pull in there. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So the way it works, the way we, where we've gotten to, and I wouldn't say we started this way, right. But where we've gotten to is, you know, the best analogy I can give is like when you, when you do IVF, you know, and, and they, they make a baby, like not the normal, like not the old school way. <laughs> you, you know, they inseminate an egg and then they freeze it at six days old, right? And some of the eggs don't make it to the six days. Even after some make it to the six days, they have genetic defects, they go away. And so like, they come back to you after this process and they go, look, there's like four viable things and they're called blastocysts. And they literally are these like fertilized eggs that are six days old that then in order to turn into babies, potentially they have to go into a uterus and grow into being child, a child. And obviously they couldn't, they wouldn't. So mm-hmm. I would say we get the business ideas to like the blastocyst level, <laughs> which is like we we don't we don't necessarily fully validate them. We sort of we do a little bit. We we have the, we see the opportunity. We spot it. We have a list of a bunch of them. And when we're engaging with someone who wants to be a CEO and co-founder, we kind of like show them all the things. Well, here's an idea. Here's an idea. Why don't you pick one or two and together let's go validate it. And normally, mm-hmm. like I have a big enough network. And a big enough platform that I can kind of validate anything within this within our space in our world, mm-hmm. right? So I'm like, well, I can get the phone calls. I can talk to all these people, right? Like, that's not a problem. But I need someone to go do the phone calls, take the notes, come, like let's go talk about it. And that process is kind of a, the initial dating phase of of wanting to become co-founders with someone. But that person has to really take the idea and go like, well, I heard this, and I think we need to do this because of it. And I think this is the right path. And I might say, well, what about let's go talk to other people. But I'm not going, no, 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 you're wrong. Here's what you should do instead. Mm-hmm. You don't get it. I'm I'm listening. I'm reacting. I'm like, if you've launched enough companies, you know organically that like ideas evolve. Like they, they, they turn into things over time. And so, but it can't be mine. If it's if it's my idea, if it's my thing, it's it's gonna be trouble. Like it because it, it, ultimately the person living it day in and day out, they have to believe it has, you know, it's their idea. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other thing is like, how do you, how do you source, you know, the right types of people to be CEOs and co-founders? That's the hardest part of the business by far, like by far. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think what I offer is I come in at least for the first year, really the entire time, but really for the first year plus 
and I behave like a co-founder and a partner to these to, to these people. And most of them mm-hmm. have never started their own companies as a founder CEO. You know, we've got some who, who or, or they, they haven't had, had success doing that, I should say. Like, we've got a couple who started their own companies. They didn't work out. Obviously, those people are eager to learn. They're super humble and they're willing to work with me and kind of, and most of the time it's amazing for them because they go, oh my God, I got a teacher. I got someone who every week I can talk to and they can help me. And and I I meet the people where they are. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not stringing them out. Right. So I meet them where they are. Another one of the CEOs, she's, she was a very successful CEO, but she'd never started her own company. So she felt more comfortable in a framework where she had this. Another person was just a brand new co-founder and CEO. She'd never done any of this before. So there are people who want to learn and want to be doing it in hand in hand with someone like me. And I think that then that has to be the case. Because if, if someone who thinks they can do it on their own or don't, doesn't need me, I'm the first person to go, well, if you don't think you need me, good luck. I'm like, love another entrepreneur in the world. But like, then we shouldn't work together. Like we, it isn't, Yeah, you have to believe a few things before, before it's going to make sense. And then from there, we start to kind of vet an idea together. And then assuming we find it there, there, we launch the idea. But oftentimes during that process, you know, I'll give you an example. Like we, we launched this really cool business. I don't talk about it much publicly, but it's a tech enabled kind of advisory and consulting business where private equity firms are the clients and we're helping them assess digital marketing capabilities of their company. So imagine you're going nice. to buy a business. That's a such a, I'm first off, so that's such a good idea because we've done a little bit of that, but that's a really good idea. Yeah. If you've done it, you know, it's hard and it's weird. And like, even at Ampush, I got asked, I kind of, we also kind of hobbied a little bit and I said, you know, you know, look, one of my friends calls me, they're, they're about to buy a half a billion dollar company, just like you're about to buy a house. They go, can you go do ho- a home inspection on this, Jesse? And, and nobody, apparently no one does it. So we run like, you know, account audits on steroids. We give them all these information and data. Awesome. I'm like, look, this is how good they are at this. And, you know, the CEO, Casey, she has a deep digital marketing background. She's an awesome. She was a CEO for many years. She'd never started something. But her and I actually started, the first idea that she picked off the list was, what I call Lambda School for Growth Marketing, right? So mm. it's this idea of like, let's go train people how to be growth marketers and let's charge the companies or charge the people part of their salary and do do the school for free and make it outcome-based. And like her and I started, we got so excited about this. We started validating it. And then through that process, I think A, we, like she started hearing a lot from companies who were private equity backed who seemed to want more of this help. But she mm-hmm. also reflected on her own kind of zones of genius and the things she got excited about. And she's like, you know, I'm not that excited about teaching all these random people growth marketing. I'm much more excited <laughs> about helping a private equity firm and, and investigating the companies and doing diligence for them. And so that was another idea on the list. And she's like, let's do that one instead. And so, you know, it sort of evolved. And then and now we've launched it and it's live and it's 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 off to the races. But it's definitely, it's it's an art much more than a science. And I, I think we'll never get so big. Like I don't see myself doing more than two of these a year. I, you know, and I don't think I could and and still the value prop be the same for that person. Because if I'm not around, if I'm not actually helping them learn how to launch the business, it, you know, it, well, why should they do it? You know, there's probably other yeah. things. Yeah, I think the big value add is having you and, and another person in the trenches, someone there that's been there, done that. I love the point on you having a list, but letting someone kind of go through it with you to find something that's their own. Because if it's yours, they're not going to have that ownership. It's just a different level of intensity and speed probably that they're going to be operating at. I think that that's really interesting. So I want to, as far as like these bootstrap giants, like you, you've done the service-based business, you've done the SaaS business, 
You've done the direct consumer, like sell a product, have inventory. Yeah. My assumption is service is the easiest to start because you don't have to actually buy inventory or have a piece of technology. You and I could like yeah. go on LinkedIn yeah. right now and be like, we have a service business for X, Y, and Z. But like with growth assistant, you've grown that to eight figures. Could you kind of walk through like, what's this like playbook for pulling this off? Because I'm happy to talk through my growing pains and the different yeah. walls I've run into as I, I hit these milestones. But I'm interested to see how you've broken through um, yeah, and yeah. done that. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, by the end of this podcast, you're gonna you're probably going to be a customer of growth assistant, I bet. Oh, um, here we go. And that's, and that's part of it. Is this a sales pitch? Oh, crap. It's a sales pitch. Well, you know, <laughs> the, the funny thing is the second the second email that's coming in the series that I put together talks a lot about unfair advantage, right? Yeah. And the way that I visualize unfair advantage is a bunch of basically unique Venn diagram circles. And at some plate, they all overlap. And then the middle of that is something that like really you are one of the best people in the world to go start it, Right. And, you know, growth assistant, like I, I had this massive network of, of people working at brands who, who I knew, like, you know, half my former employees were running growth at, a, at some D2C brand, right? Mm -hmm. So I had this big network. I, I had a, a lot of knowledge for how to offshore things because we had done that at Ampush. I knew the roles. I knew the things people would do. And I kind of had the brand, like a burgeoning brand in growth marketing. So I had like, there's all these, and then you bring Adrian in, who's the CEO, and she had a big background in HR and recruiting nice. and had built big recruiting systems. So you just start looking at all the, the concentric circles and you go, oh, wow, th th like how many of these kinds of things exist? Like where the, all these things are kind of the stars have aligned in this way. And I would argue we use unfair advantage as more fodder to start the business than even like markets and ideas like that's not there's plenty of big markets with unserved needs there's a million ideas mm -hmm. out there there's not that many unfair advantages we have so we use that as a starting point so that business i mean you know the first 30 customers were literally former employees of mine awesome yeah and so and so you know it, it, they all got on the phone with me you know not all of them bought from me but like a lot of them bought from us right and and then you know we happen to also be like we're like, are you having trouble finding people? Are you annoyed with doing the rote tasks? Like in your case, are you having people turn over at the agency because they're sick of sitting in the innards of Facebook? Like, oh, well, we have amazing people offshore. They're trained in how to do this and we can set them up for you. And they're, you know, $2,500 a month, right? Everyone says yes to that pitch right now that we have to go deliver the great person. That's the hard part of the business. And the supply mm -hmm. side is there's a whole thing we can discuss around that. But the demand side, it was, we felt like, unlike Ampush, by the way, which we can talk about, Ampush, I felt like I was lost the whole time, or at least for the first five, six years, I was just lost. I had no idea what I was doing. I was learning new things every day. And with Growth Assistant, I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm playing craps and the dice are weighted. Like, I know when I roll, I'm going to get certain numbers more often. And it just felt really different because I had these unfair advantages. Yeah. And can we talk about the difference between those? Because I think a lot of people listening also like, are doing service-based business. And tell me if this category, categorization is right. I put growth assistant in the category of a productized service where it's like repeatable, scalable. You pay something, you get this. You're getting amazing offshore talent for like 30% or half of what you would right. pay here in the US. Whereas Ampush, it's like premium agency. Maybe it's more custom, more strategic. Yeah higher retainer, but maybe harder to scale because it could be custom work or was it just a paid ad agency? I don't know if yeah, I- Yeah, no, no, I think you you nailed it for the most part. I, I would call growth system even simpler. It's a staffing business. I mean, it's a staffing oh, okay. or talent marketplace. Like 
Yeah. We don't we don't actually get in between the customer and the person like the growth assistant. They become they, mm. they're sort of an embedded person onto the team. So for you, we'd say we'll get you two two media buying support people, two creative support people, and two admin support or outreach or something. Where, where's my salesperson? Can I offshore sales? Yeah, they, yeah. No, we no, you can't. I mean we, sales assistant, right? Yeah, we, we I did I did this thing in Ampush where I would leverage my LinkedIn with someone offshore and they'd figure out who I was connected to and who we could get introductions for and it became just a way that we got meetings all the time. And so, yeah, look, I, I, the, that's a little bit more of like a old school staffing BPO type model, mm-hmm. but it's recurring revenue. It's pretty good margins and it's growing super, and it's really needed. I think that's the big thing is like, there's just a big need, as you know, digital marketing talent is extremely hard to come by. And to um, keep, yeah. And to keep, right? So, so I think that the need for it is the pain point is really, really pronounced. And then age, and then Ampush, as you said, was, you know, was called by many people, the McKinsey of growth marketing, right? It was the super high end. The average deal size was probably one to $2 million a year in fees, right? So you're talking about, you know, huge deals. They took us months, Mm -hmm. you know, if not years to close, they were, you know, you pull out all the stops as a part of the pitch. Now, what's interesting though, is, is I will tell you scaling that business and a services business in particular, I think like you have to really enjoy the talent side of the business because the only way you ever scale, and I was lucky enough to work in consulting and then work in financial services early in my career. So I saw these huge, people don't realize that McKinsey is a services business. Goldman right? Sachs yeah. is a services business, yeah. right? So these two you know, venerated companies, they're big services business. So I got to sit inside the halls of these places and I took away a lot of things. But the number one thing I took away was hire incredible talent and train them and make sure you have a system for how they work that that works that you can repeat it multiple times over. And I used to at Ampush in the early days, I would say, we got to build our McDonald's franchise. You know, we got to have sort of these little pods. They have certain types of people. All the people know how to flip the burgers, how to put it in the bag, mm-hmm. how to. And as soon as we were able to do that, that's how you know we scale Ampush in from three million in revenue to twenty four million in revenue in less than three years. Dude, that's a massive agency, man. That's amazing. Yeah. And. And that came from really getting good at recruiting great people and putting them into a system that trained and got them kind of, you know, got those franchises. Created. Yeah. What, what's driving the top of funnel there? Because I totally hear you on like some of my best hires. It's like I overpaid for someone because I a player and it like more than worked. Talk about like getting the people that are paying those huge retainers. Was it building a reputation? Was it referrals? Yeah, I mean, that that specific growth took place during, we rode the wave, you know, we were in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And that, that, that specific numbers I just gave happened from 2012 to 2015, right? Oh, wow. Super early. We were like, our clients were names like Uber, Dollar Shave Club, Peloton, Birchbox. So we were early, early, early. Mm -hmm. And then we'd bring these clients on and they were exploding as companies themselves, right? So we had a bunch of like, we had the wind way, way behind our backs, but we still needed to be able to recruit, train and scale. It was a people business. It was a services business. So it wasn't, yeah. we could have easily not had it work out had we not, you know, the demand was there. That was the easy part because we were just so early to to being in Facebook. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but 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 so it was, but we were very good at the talent side. We were very, I, I am and, and was and very passionate about talent, about coaching and training and like, if my people aren't learning, that's a big problem. And I, I take that super seriously. And I think you kind of have to, to be in any kind of services business, frankly, any business, but, but certainly yeah. services. 
Oh my gosh, it's every yeah, people are everything. And talk about the growth with Growth Assistant because obviously, like with the bigger agency, you were able to right away and have a phenomenal team and deliver with Growth Assistant. Yeah, you talk about, I think, in your email, I'm also obsessed with this idea of have like an amazing offer. It makes the marketing so much easier. Yeah. With Growth Assistant, you have that amazing offer, but like what has worked is you hit different levels or phases of growth because you launch on the back of your network and referrals. But does that get you to eight figures? Like what else have you done? And doing that from a bootstrapped approach, because it's always like you want to stay profitable. How much do you dip into the margins of the profit to fuel and fund growth? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, every business I've started, we end up kind of getting lucky on something and, you know, and then figuring out how we got lucky and replicating the luck over and over again. Right. And so in the case of, of Ampush, Ampush actually started as a lead gen business on paid search. And then about a year or so in, we said, let's try that Facebook thing. And back then Facebook was like <laughs> desktop, right rail. And we go, oh my God. And like, what was a 10% margin and arbitraging for leads on Google was like an 80% margin on Facebook. Mm-hmm. So we, and then we just said, well, we got to go figure that Facebook thing. And then we became the best in the world at it. Right. Mm-hmm. And in the case of growth assistant, I think there was at least two things. Like we started with my network. Then we started doing Twitter threads about the story of growth assistant or how to do certain things with off. And that just, we just got so many organic leads that way. And then we, you know, we've been saying, okay, how do we get the best, be the best in the world at organic content vis-a-vis offshore marketing, you know, like, yeah. like own that category. And that's the one of the other one was around recruiting. So, you know, we did, we use the digital marketing muscles there and, you know, we have a TikTok, you could go look it up. It's 50, 60,000 TikTok followers in the Philippines. And, you know, it turns out that by the way, we got kind of lucky with this, but the, in the Philippines, they're having the same, same sort of talent issues that the U S is having. Like their two options, if you're talent there have been go and work in the, the sweatshops for United Airlines or American Express they have to commute 90 minutes each way. They're not treated like a human mm-hmm. being. That's kind of like one option. The other option is go to Upwork and do random project-based work for random American clients. They're kind of jerks. They stiff you in the bill every now and <laughs> yeah. you know. And we basically said, well, you can work from home. We're going to get you internet. We're going to get you a computer. And mm-hmm. we're going to make it a great experience for you. And you're going to get to work with these really cool tech companies on a full-time capacity. Yeah. So like you're then, a part of the team. Yeah. You're a part of their team. You're not, you know, and and they, all of a sudden we had a big influx of talent. And between that and the digital marketing, we were able to bring in a bunch of unique resumes, which then kind of builds the flywheel, right? Because most of our growth has actually not come from new customers. Most of our growth has come, you know, you, again, you're going to go get two or three growth systems after this. And in a year, you're going to have 10. Where, where's my discount code? Where's the promo well, code? I'll, I'll yeah. get it for you. But you're going to have 10 in a year, right? Because you're going to go, yeah. dude, this is awesome. These, you know, all my employees are happy to have all this work mm-hmm. off. Those folks love it. You know, they like being part of an American team. They like being treated like humans. They like getting days off and not just being clocking in and clocking out. Mm-hmm. And so you, you'll start with two or three and then in a year you'll have 10. And so all the growth has actually come from us finding great talent and then clients going, give me more of that, please. Right. Yeah. Uh, our biggest client started with two and has 50 people now with us. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, hiring is such a pain. If you have something that solves that problem for you, that's, that's everything. 
No, man, I love it. And that's why I was talking to a guy in my entrepreneurship group. He like buys companies and he's like, all I care about is recurring revenue. He's like, that is my number one thing. And that's what I do like about growth assistant is the retention component of it. Because yeah. then the lifetime value is just magical. So we talk about bootstrapping service-based businesses. Let's talk about SaaS or even like a D2C one. Because I see where you have the unfair advantage with the D2C company because you've already run ads for all these D2C yeah, companies. So with Poopery, it's like, let's, you know, have our own that we grow and then make sure I pronounce it well, and unbloat, right? Those are the two D2C, am I correct? Yeah, yeah. Puforia is kind of dead. We Pufo- sort of okay, turned gotcha. into unbloat. Awesome. Um, but it was, you know, yeah, we can go through them. Like for Unbloat, well, for Puforia, I it was like a funny story where I was like, you know, I just want to see how good I am at, at running ads. Like I did this for 10 <laughs> years. I'm going to literally take a commodity product. I'm going to throw it up with a funny, silly brand name and I'm going to see if I can market it. And yeah, that's the ultimate marketing test, right? It turns out I'm not <laughs> that good of a digital marketer because that one just never, you know, quite got the economics working. But what it did do is it got us in front of customers and we started hearing and listening to them. And they kept saying like bloating, bloating, bloating. We kept hearing that. Then we started doing some research on it. And we realized that the term bloating is searched more often than erectile dysfunction. Oh my gosh. And we said like, wow, this is a big category. Like, and so we launched, you know, Unbloat. And and I think this has been a test and, and a subsequent validation of my skills and my learnings. And honestly, for most of the last year and a half since we started it, I wasn't sure. Like, like the, I could have easily come to you on this podcast and said, you know what? I thought I was really good at this, but it turns out like, yeah, I didn't really know what I was doing. Like maybe all these young people I hired knew what they were doing, but I didn't. But, mm-hmm. you know, we were extremely disciplined with our spend and our ROAS. We were, you know, we were amping up testing and, and performance. And, you know, on the course of a year, we've gone from, you know, call it a four or five month payback, which is not very exciting to first order profitable. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, and, and it came from what I would describe as the playbook that me and multiple other people at Ambush put together, which was really like, uh, there's a lot of, you know, I can't share it all now necessarily, but like creative testing, different ways to kind of pull lots of creative together, discipline around the financial side of it and not overspending, you know, it, and, and so we basically were able to build up. It's now, you know, this month it'll do over 3 million, close to 4 million in sales. It's profitable. In, in the month? No, 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 no. In, in on a run rate basis. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so like, you know, yeah. 350 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's a 70% gross margin business. And one of the secrets for how we bootstrapped it, by the way, was we got to kind of a really com- compelling negative cash working cycle. So we were able to get terms, you know, we put a little bit of money, like I, I put $250,000 in each of these businesses just to get them going. Mm-hmm. And so, we, you know, we, we, Convince someone to give us a very low order quantity to start, you know, that took some work, but we sold ourselves, we pitched the dream and then, you know, we're able to get terms from Facebook and then able to use a company like we use Settle, one of these kind of financing businesses. And so the net of all of that is like, you know, we basically, we, we have a negative cash working cycle. So we make $100,000 in revenue. We're paying the bill from like three months ago because we've had all this time to kind of get going on it. So we're actually generating cash in the business and have been since the sixth month in business. So we haven't been profitable as a company, like for example, for from June of last year to May of this year, let's say we weren't profitable, but we were still cash flow positive. Yeah. Uh, now we're profitable and cash flow positive. But but so that's what allowed us with a very, very limited amount of cash to get that thing going and get it off the ground. 
That's cool. For people listening, this idea of like the cash conversion cycle, there's something genius here if you go into the pricing page because um, one, it's a subscription product or it's a recurring revenue product, which is huge. And you save money by paying more money up front for like the next three months. So you're getting that cash on hand and then you've got to pay for the inventory and then as and you've delayed that. So that's, that's quite genius, which if you're going yeah. down this bootstrap path, like that is a must. And so uh, yeah, and, and well done it's there. way more common than you think. The, the best example most people don't know is Amazon only raised one round of venture capital. And you go, how is that possible? It's Amazon. Yeah. You go, they raised yeah. one round and then and then they got big. How do they get big? Well, they had negative working capital. You would buy something on Amazon. They'd take a few days to ship it to you. And then they'd pay their suppliers 60 days later. Mm-hmm. And so they they had, you know, they'd already had the cash. And so as long as they grew, they generated cash every single month because they were always ahead of last month's sales or three months ago sales. And they were able to basically grow their business using the customer's money to kind of fund the the growth and operation. So this isn't like a small time, you know, the <laughs> Amazon, the big daddy grew their entire business this way. And there's a bunch of articles about it and charts online, but it's, it's a, it's a thing I think a lot more e-commerce entrepreneurs should pay attention to. Yeah, no, that that's really cool, man. That's super inspiring people, inspiring for people to think differently on how they run their business. So you don't have to tap into outside funding or whatever. And then the last one I want to hit on is, Kahani, is that launched or is that in beta with certain people? Because I want it for our clients. I haven't gotten on yeah. the path if it's available in the Shopify store because I, so for people listening, you take the stories function that we all see on Instagram or wherever else, and it's allowing you to have that experience on the website. And it could be a magical landing page from a story ad to an experience on the site. Is that a, an accurate pitch or what? Is yeah, you pitch it. You pitch it better than I do. Yeah. I mean, look, the 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 insight we had there was the the experience on TikTok and Instagram have gotten so immersive. And yet you send someone to this old website that's like a old scrolling kind of like text heavy thing. Like, why aren't you sending them to an experience that is immersive the way that those platforms are? And so we started with the stories functionality. You know, now we've launched kind of like an influencer landing page, micro experience, micro store experience. And so you can now, to your point, you could go from a whitelisted ad on Facebook, land right onto the, that same whitelisters micro store and you can purchase through that that experience. And it's mm-hmm. sort of all in vertical media format. And, you know, that one has been tougher. Like, I'll just be totally frank. I mean, I'm sharing a lot. Like, the the, the idea of Kahani, everybody loves, but, but a busy e-commerce entrepreneur who's got a million things going on, they kind of go, yeah, next month, Jesse, next month, next month. Yeah. What we realized as we grew it was, and the reason we kind of made the, we, the second part of the product was, and it's more or less a pivot, you know, we think that's a bit as, is like Kahani was really cool, but it wasn't solving anybody's problems. Mm. Nobody, you know, no one was waking up in the morning. It's going, like a oh. nice to have, not a must yeah, have. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. And that's the thing about product is, is you really have to not only dial into a very specific use case, but you also have to be solving a very, very important problem. Mm. And I'd say like, that's one that's just been tougher on us. It's been more expensive. You know, we've been able to get enough revenue to kind of keep it, keep it moving, keep it sort of bootstrapped and we're scrappy with how we're building it but it hasn't sort of seen any kind of meaningful lift around it. And so now we're hoping with this landing page tool, it's a real thing people need. You know, you know this, 30% of brands are spending on whitelisters. The landing experience for today for Instagram and TikTok is broken. You know, it's not a very good or very diverse. Growth marketers want something easy to use to be able to launch this. And so that's what, what the tool is, is going to do is going to make it really easy to launch a bunch of different landing experiences yeah. with influencer, you know, persona, like influencer persona in, around it. What's their favorite product? them talking to you, kind of being a part of that. And so yeah. 
that's actually launching in the next month here, the new, the new product or the new pivot. And it's been, that one's been a, a different experience. You know, it's been a tougher experience. Yeah. And well, first off, you should be selling through us. We do quite a bit of converger and optimization work because it'd be a fun landing. We do a lot of obviously landing page experiments for our ad creative that lands on it on on the website. So we could be using this in our experiment pipeline. And then oh, I'm going to connect through, you with the CEO right after this. Yeah, pass yeah. through the the cost there because I, I do like that. But t- so I really appreciate your transparency. And by the way, man, like, we, we talk about congratulating each other for being entrepreneurs. Like, I love that you're put, putting shots on goal, right? It's like getting reps and you're honest with the ones that didn't hit, but then you have ones that have hit extremely well, like growth assistant, unbloat. So with both of those, did you put 250K in? And with Kahani, was that the same rule? Like I put 250K rule, yeah. in and that's it. And then we same like, rule, yeah. we see how it goes. Very cool, man. Well, nice. I want to, I know we're kind of running up on time. I like to end these podcasts with the same question. I didn't prepare you, but ahead of time, so apologies for right. me. What is the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? Like when I ask that question, what comes to mind is it could be truly something nice someone did. I've had people answer in kind of a funny, fun way where it's like a tough love situation where it like lit a fire under them. But I'd be interested to see your take on that. Yeah, yeah, I, I've told this story before, but you know, in 2015, we we sold a minority stake, kind of to a business called Red Ventures in Ampush, and you know, we had been up and to the right for five years, and we had you know pushed the team pretty hard, and and we'd finally gotten kind of this this first. It's kind of a mini liquidity event. We sold 20% of the business to them. They came in, and they're they're operators. I mean, they're they're business builders, but they had wanted. To, you know, what we were doing in social and wanted to kind of be a part of it. And so they fly our executive team out, you know, with companies, 200 people or something, they fly executive team out to Charlotte where they're based. We get dinner with their founder and CEO, who's a friend and mentor. And, you know, he's, he's run business for two, three decades. Guy is very experienced, right? So and he only asks questions. Like he never mm-hmm. says anything. He just asks questions. <laughs> so he just sits at dinner and he kind of goes like, how's everyone feeling about the deal? And, and, and then he doesn't just say, you know, it's not a small talk question. Then someone goes, well, you know, people have been waiting for it for a while, a while to get done. He goes, oh, what do you mean? He goes, well, well, the founders, you know, they've been trying to, trying to shop this company around for the last nine months. People are pretty tired. He goes, oh, well, what are they tired of? And, you know, it, five questions into it, my whole executive team is venting to this new guy. Oh my gosh. That's in the business. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck. And I've never taken any outside money. You know, I've never had that situation. And so we go, you know, dinner gets over and I'm like embarrassed and I'm, I'm like, Jesus, what just happened? Like, you know, and, and he, he just kind of pulls me aside and he goes, Hey, you know, like I'm your partner. I'm here to help you. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to help you with this. Like I, I've run business. Like he kind of, you know, he had a moment where he could have been like, Oh my God, what did I invest in? Yeah, you know, but he he really showed up as someone who who built a lot of trust with me in that moment of hey, like I've been there, I I understand what we're going through, I can support you, and I will support you in solving these problems and kind of working through this. And I think like I'm not sure I've ever had anyone in that position in my career show up that way. And mm-hmm. it was like it really it inspired me to show up more that way. Like it was just a really really powerful moment for me. And even later, like. I remember nine months later, he called me. He's like, how come you never call me about my business? Like, or your business and tell me what's going on? How I can help? I'm like, 
it's like two percent of your company, dude. Like it's, it's you know. It's <laughs> And he goes, yes. He goes, yeah, the revenue is meaningless to me, Jesse, but you're not meaningless to me. You're important to me. Right. I was like, oh, oh, okay, shit. Like that's very different (laughs) worldview. Like, you know, and so Rick, you know, just in general, I think that kindness in a professional setting with his money on the line that, you know, like it just, it left a pretty big impact on me and it showed, showed me what I could potentially be as a leader to people. And I think it's pretty inspiring for me. That's a great story. And that's contagious when you like hear things like that. You're like, oh, that's how you operate at that level. That's that's really impressive. Well, Jesse, this has been a blast, man. Where should we direct people if they want to like follow you? And then as we kind of like, as you're launching Bootstrap Giants, like where can they go? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for now, Twitter's great. You know, JS Pooji, and we're going to launch a boot- whole Bootstrap Giants content community. It's going to become a whole big thing that we hope you know, you, Jim, and, and a bunch of other people are a part of. And then, you know, we also think every company is going to get a growth assistant. So go get, go get one. <laughs> Looks like I got to, I got to sign up once I get that promo code. And aren't, are you going to launch a podcast? I feel like I saw you, I don't know if it's in your email or somewhere, you mentioned a podcast where you're going to like interview bootstrappers or something. Am yeah. I making this up? No, no. I want to launch a podcast also called Bootstrap Giants, where we interview some of the folks who have built these bootstrap companies. Nice. And are you going to do like live coaching or how, how transparent do people have to be? TBD, TBD. I don't, I'm, we're playing with a couple different formats. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, very cool. Well, Jesse, this was a blast, man. Thank you so much for the time. I'm glad we got to connect. Likewise. Good to see you, Jim. Thank you. Okay, I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growth Hit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent, but you have issues finding good people? Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where remotely talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. 
Even better, 3% of all sales go to the Children's Hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation. See if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose.